Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined by Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities and an ardent follower of the England cricket team. I wonder what you've been making of this week, uh, Simon, either in the markets or on the field of play. Well, uh, I think it's fair to say it's been a tough week for both investment companies and, of course, for England cricket fans. Uh, Certainly, the start of the week was not what we had dreamt of. In terms of investment companies this week, probably end up about half a percent down. And that's in contrast to the FTSE All Share, actually, which is going to end up in positive territory, probably about half a percent up. The sector average discount has been kind of moving around about a 2.4% discount or so. There's been some volatility But uh, investment companies have had a harder time of it this week. uh, And I think there's a couple of things going on there, not least of which is actually the strength of sterling. Uh, You know, we've talked uh, in the past about how investment companies have benefited from their increasing tilt to uh, overseas assets, global equities away from the UK market. Uh, And this is one of those weeks where it hasn't really worked in their favour. Sterling has strengthened. And so for investors with overseas exposure, it's acted as a, as a bit of a headwind. I mean, and over the long term, of course, that's not necessarily the case. But certainly this week, it's uh, not proven to its advantage. Well, that hasn't stopped there being, of course, a considerable amount of fundraising activity and also some corporate activity. We might kick off by catching up on the next instalment of the story at BH Global and BH Macro. I'm sure listeners will recall from last week that this is a uh, a situation where the manager, Brevin Howard, the hedge fund management group, have essentially asked the board to reverse the uh, cut in fees that they negotiated uh, two or three years ago. So what uh, what's happened there, Simon? What's the latest on that one? Yeah, no, an interesting uh, story, this one, for the reasons that you've just outlined. I mean, slightly different in each instance. So BH Global have announced that they will hold an EGM for shareholders to vote on the manager's proposed changes to the fee arrangements. And this follows discussions with uh, some of the shareholders. Uh, and I think the board came to the view there that uh, despite the fact they were clearly not happy with uh, what the investment manager was trying to uh, propose, that it was only right that shareholders should have the chance to vote on that. Now, following the EGM um, and assuming that the new fee proposals are approved, the board will look to seek to implement a return of capital for shareholders who wish to exit. I think they recognise that with the difference or the changes or the increase in the fee structure, it would only be right to offer some kind of liquidity event. Now, BH Macro is not markedly different from that. They've um, they've said they're going to hold an EGM um, in March, and that will be, again, for shareholders to vote on the changes proposed by the manager but if it's approved, they've said that the fund will have a, a tender offer for up to 40% of shares and issue at a 2% discount to any of the less costs. So in other words, they've, they've stipulated what the liquidity event will be even at this stage. I think probably the other thing to note is in the case of BH Macro, the day before uh, these proposals came out, the chairman there, Colin Maltby, actually uh, it was announced that he was retiring with uh, immediate uh, effect. Now, there wasn't necessarily a definitive link between the two, but certainly um, Colin Maltby had been the, the chair only for about a, a last year or two. So perhaps a, a little bit unusual. And I think probably most people would um, you know, add one plus one to make two. So there is an implication or an inference, which we, we don't know for sure, that maybe he uh, feels he has to take responsibility for what's happened here. And I guess the what the effect of these announcements is, is that the shareholders will basically be asked whether they want to live with the increase in fees from, I think, from 1% to 2%, I think it is, annual management fee. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a performance fee as well. So they're either going to have a chance to, you know, swallow the fee increase or to get their money back in one form or another. That's the basic sort of principle here, I think. Is that right? No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think clearly both boards are of the same opinion that for those shareholders who are not happy with this change in the uh, investment management arrangements, there should be some exit uh, at a reasonable level. So any of the less costs. Okay, so the other thing that's interesting here, which I noticed, uh, and I think I'm correct in my facts here. I mean, some people have said to me, "Well, it's you know, these are hedge fund operations; they've got lots of money. Though, why are they worrying about this? Uh, you know, this uh, relatively small investment trust only got well, it's got a billion pounds, which is a lot of money for you or I. But for them, maybe it's not so much. But in fact, they've had a significant withdrawal of funds. It happens often, quite often, in hedge funds that when they have a period of relatively poor performance, the 
lot of money leaves them. And so their assets under management have fallen quite significantly over the last two or three years, uh, which I didn't know, but surprised me. So that might explain why they're particularly keen to increase the fees on this particular fund. And I guess they'd also argue that, um, as we touched on last week, that their performance, their their kind of main selling point is that they're going to do well when the markets, equity markets are falling, and that they are a kind of defensive counter, if you like, a diversification uh, counter to uh, bad periods in the markets. And they proved that last year during the pandemic. So I guess they're saying, you know, we are worth it after all. And, and that's absolutely right. I mean, the performance this time, or certainly in March last year, was very, very strong at a time, clearly, when most people were struggling. So though prior to that, you're, you're equally, you're right again, in as much as they did go through a period of difficult performance, and that would have resulted in uh, redemptions uh, across their, their platform. And I think they, they made various changes to their business going back a couple of years. Well, we'll see how that one goes. I say I have a, I have an inkling that quite a few shareholders will probably choose to lump it, but we'll see how that turns out when we uh, get to that point. Next up, again, is a trust that I'm involved with, Jupiter UK Growth. We've mentioned this a couple of times. It's the winding down process in this case. The, uh, the trust is going into liquidation. Uh, the board has decided that, but they've also decided to offer a rollover option for those who uh, may want to protect any capital gains they've made over the years in this particular trust. Uh, so there's been a bit of a just an update this week. Can you remind me perhaps Simon, what it is, <laughs> since I, of course, I do know what it is. <laughs> uh, with pleasure. Yeah. Uh, so this week we found out that there would be a publication. I think it was the publication of the circular this week. And this was all originally announced back in October. Uh, but we've got the, the circular this week with the proposals for the reconstruction and the voluntary winding up. So the general meetings to approve the proposals will be held on the 15th of March and the 26th of March. Uh, and dealings in the shares will end on the 23rd of March. So basically, by the end of March, this should be all done and dusted. Um, Brown Advisory Global Leaders is the uh, rollover option, but the cash option is the default and the cash is expected to be dispatched during the week commencing the 29th of March. Indeed. So basically, the shareholders have two options. There. And we've gone to some length in the circular to make this absolutely clear what those options are. If you do nothing, you're going to get cash. If you do opt to do the rollover, you will be offered shares in a sterling class of the fund, which uh, is the rollover option, this uh, Brown Advisory Global Leaders Fund. And then, as you say, there's we have to have two general meetings under the requirements which we operate as a listed company and uh, if those approaches are approved by shareholders will result in the investment trust going into liquidation. So let's move on and before we get on to fundraising of which there's been a number let's just talk about some sector classification changes the AIC. We always have some interest in where trusts are to be found in which sector they go and the purpose of sectors is I suppose to make it easier for shareholders to compare the performance of trusts that are uh, following a similar strategy, not obviously identical, but similar strategy. Uh, so what are the AIC and its much lauded Statistics Committee, of which you are a member, Simon, uh, what have they decided to do? So this week they announced, they've been the AIC, announced the creation of three new sectors in China or Greater China, India and Property UK Logistics. Uh, and this will all happen in March. Uh, in addition to which they will look to, to merge uh, a number of uh, single country sectors, namely uh, Asia Pacific X Japan, Europe X UK and Latin American. And in fact, they're going to rename the Asia Pacific income sector to Asia Pacific equity income. So there's a little bit of housekeeping involved in this, but also I think there's a, an important point to be taken away. And that's how uh, particularly Asia and emerging markets are changing. The importance of China, we only have three investment trusts who are entirely focused on China at the moment. And there's a Bailey Gifford, uh, JP Morgan and Fidelity Fund, uh, and they've all performed very well uh, in their own right. But it's clearly a growing important part of the marketplace. And those three funds alone are actually uh, seeing quite a lot of assets in that area. So I think it's right to recognise, uh, provide them with their own subsector. And really, as you say, to provide greater comparison in terms of how they those particular funds are uh, performing going forward. I think it's an area that is capturing investors' interest. Yes, I guess uh, it's obviously a helpful move. Um, obviously, we've said many times before that some sectors have a much wider range of strategies in them than others, and therefore it actually makes uh, comparisons rather difficult unless you have a considerable familiarity with what each individual 
trust is doing. And I guess there's another point here which is perhaps often neglected, which is that because some of these sectors are quite small in number, there's only you know three or five or, or sometimes even fewer companies in them, it is useful occasionally for shareholders to look across to what's happening in open-ended fund equivalents. Uh, we do that from time to time. You do that from time to time. Uh, because quite often you'll find that, you know, as we believe investment trusts deliver superior performance on the whole on average over time, you would expect to see them doing better than their open-ended counterparts. Is that generally what you find when you do that sort of exercise? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something that we absolutely do. And many people who are involved in the investment trust sector do as well. Uh, a few points to make. It, obviously, there are far more uh, open-ended funds than there are investment trusts. So when you do the comparison exercise, you're comparing with a far greater uh, number of vehicles invariably. Uh, investment trusts stack up very well against that open-ended uh, equivalence, although there are times uh, when you find that they might struggle, not least when we see discount volatility, for instance. So if you looked uh, after the first quarter of last year when discounts ballooned out, I dare say investment trusts, uh, particularly if you compared share price total returns against uh, open-ended fund NAV total return, would have not looked quite so good. And also the point that investment trusts can deploy gearing. So there are moments in the market cycle when investment trusts obviously look good as a result of that or can uh, that can act as a, as a headwind. So over the long term, the investment trust uh, performance record is very good against their open-ended uh, equivalents. Um, and in, in a number of cases, you'd expect to see them in a top quartile when you kind of merge the two peer groups, although it can vary in over shorter time periods. Clearly, it will be subject to market conditions. Very good. OK, well, we said, uh, notwithstanding the market having a little bit of a wobble this week, uh, that there is a lot of fundraising going on. We know that from uh, things we've talked about in the last few weeks and indeed leading up to Christmas. Let's start with what's happening at uh, AVI Japan Opportunity. We mentioned that one before. I think we know the results of their uh, exercise. What do they have to say about that? Yes, that's right. So this week they announced they'd raised uh, gross proceeds of around about 14 million through a placing of just over 12 million new shares. So that was done at a 2% premium to their NAV, uh, a placing price of 115.07p. So that's that's helpful for that particular investment trust. Just to remind people, it launched in October 2018. I think they raised about 80 million at that stage. And in fact, this time last year, they said they were looking to raise a little bit more money. And then obviously, uh, market conditions changed uh, quite rapidly in that February, March period. So uh, this is a chance for the, the, the investment trust to push on. As the name would suggest, it invests in uh, Japanese equities, uh, but very much a specialist approach, looking to take a more kind of value orientated activist approach uh, and agitate to release that value back. So the, the investment team led by Joe Baumfreud have developed this strategy through uh, AVI Global Opportunities, so the investment trust formerly known as British Empire Trust. Uh, and so they've got a track record now going back over a number of years. But I think they'll be happy to to grow this particular investment trust. It takes it nearer to a, a market cap of about 150 million, so growing nicely now. Would that be a, a good result or a disappointing result? I mean, it's kind of incremental growth. I guess about sort of ten percent of the market value, something of that order. Is that is that a good result or a, or a bad result in this in this particular case? Do you think? No, I think they'd be happy to raise that that kind of money. I mean, I think they uh, said they were looking to raise up to thirty five million. So clearly, more would have been good. But equally, to you know, increase the size of this investment trust is helpful. And I think what you often find with these kind of moments that it's an opportunity for the investment team to go out or maybe not given lockdown, but certainly to talk to people via Zoom or whatever medium they're using and just remind people the story, the investment case, why they believe there's a great opportunity. So though it might not necessarily result in demand for shares at a particular point in time, it just reinforces the whole idea and, and reminds people to keep following the, the fortunes of this particular trust. So I see it as, as, as positive. Yes, it may be worth noting that uh, the Japanese stock market has reached a 30-year high this week. That's, of course, uh, not saying that much, given that back in 1989, it peaked at a level which is higher than it is now. Extraordinary period when the Japanese stock market became about 60% of the total world market. And it's taken a long, long time to recover back to the, towards those levels. But it has hit a 30-year high this week. And another Japanese uh, investment trust has also been in the fundraising business. What's the news there? So yes, a slightly different take on fundraising. This is CC Japan Income and Growth. 
Uh, and what they've done is that they've got shareholder permission to issue subscription shares. So this will be done on a one for five bonus issue basis. The subscription price has been calculated at 161p per share. And just to remind people how subscription shares work, they're effectively like uh, warrants. So it's the right to uh, invest, but not the obligation at a set price, in other words, 161p. Uh, and these subshare rights uh, can be exercised on a quarterly basis between the end of May this year and the end of February in 2023. So it's only a, a two-year life or so. The idea, why have they done this? Why do they not go out and just simply raise some money? Well, the answer is that they're actually trading on a bit of a discount at the moment, probably about 8 or 9% or so. And what this allows them to do, potentially, if the uh, share price works in their favour, is that they can issue buy these subshares or raise additional capital of about forty-three million pounds over the next few years. So that's the incentive for the the company. Um, for those shareholders who receive these subscription shares, they can effectively put them in the bottom drawer and not worry about them should they wish. Um, and if they mature in the money, i.e. Uh, above one hundred sixty-one p, the trustee will be appointed. Uh, to look after their best interests and, and sell them and return the proceeds. Or equally, the subscription shares can actually be traded uh, in the interim period uh, and they have their own ticker and, and share price and so on and so forth. At one stage, we saw quite a few of these across the investment trust space, uh, less so these days, but as I said, it's, it is a way to raise uh, additional capital even when you're trading on a discount to your NAV. So in effect, you're attempting to, as it were, kind of pre-raise money, if I put it that way, so if the share price goes back up to 161p from its current level, which, as you say, is at a discount, then I guess the company assumes that nobody is going to be quite so unwise if the shares are trading at a premium to that share price not to exercise their uh, subscription shares. That would seem to be illogical. Is that right? I mean, yes. I mean, without wishing to give investment advice, but clearly there would be a bit of a disconnect. So, for instance... Um, on Thursday, the, the share price on CC Japan income and growth closed on the day at 143p. Uh, so to convert in via a subshare at 161p when you could uh, you buy them substantially cheaper in the market wouldn't make any sense. Uh, and certainly for a trustee who was appointed at the end uh, of the life of these subscription shares, assuming that they weren't all exercised, uh, they would absolutely take the view not to uh, not to convert them. Right. So there's no guarantee that's going to happen. But if it does happen that the share price does get to that level between now and then, the company assumes that they will be exercised and therefore they will get more money in. If the share price goes up significantly higher than 161p, then effectively there's a, there's a bit of a cost attached, right? As we said last week, there's nothing for free in this world. They're missing the opportunity to raise money at a higher price, essentially, if the shares do go significantly past 161p. Uh, at least that's, in theory. Th that's right. So in the particular instance when the, the NAV is substantially higher than 161p, then the, the, the way it works is there, are, there is a dilution to the ordinary shareholders. So they paid the cost, which is why if you have your ordinary shares and your subscription shares and hold them as a package, you shouldn't be out of favour, in theory at least, by this, this mechanism. And it's, it's one of the reasons why some people don't, frankly, like subscription shares or don't like warrants. They see this as an additional complication, uh, and some people find it difficult to, to hold subscription shares for, for various reasons. But equally, there are some people who see it as quite an opportunity and like trading subscription shares because they are geared plays on the ordinary share class. And we've seen a couple of instances, have we not, in the last few weeks? So do you think there'll be more of them coming along? If these things succeed, if people kind of respond enthusiastically, do you think that will be, we'll see more of this trend continuing? I'd be slightly surprised. I mean, as I said, going back, um, oh gosh, 10, 15 years, we, we saw a whole raft of them. But at that particular time, uh, investment trusts were slightly out of favour or certainly not as in favour as they find themselves at the moment. So we saw more mainstream investment trusts trading on discounts. They were quite ingrained. And really, to, to kind of grow these vehicles, it, it seemed to be the only option. Now, as, as we discussed week in, week out, a number of investment trusts are trading well, are trading on premium ratings, are able to issue shares on a regular basis and therefore provide liquidity to their shareholders or potential investors. And so I think there is less onus on it. In addition to which, if you do issue a subscription share, I think I'm right in saying that you are seen as a more sophisticated investment. And I think when you come to invest in 
an investment trust with that kind of structure, that there are additional kind of uh, hoops that people have to jump through when they come to invest via panels. I'm not an expert in that, but I think it adds a degree of complication that is not necessarily in investment trust's favour. So that, as you say, might actually make it a little bit harder to attract interest from, for example, from private investors who aren't qualified to invest in complicated, complex investments. Okay, well, I think there's enough on that for the moment. Let's move on and uh, talk about uh, Chrysalis Investments, CHRI, been a very successful new launch uh, on the London market. What have they been uh, doing in terms of fundraising? So they announced this week that they're looking to hold an AGM and an EGM, uh, which will both be held on the 8th of March. And basically, the business of the EGM is to seek shareholder authority to issue up to 600 million ordinary and or possibly C shares uh, without regard to the, the preemption rights. So in other words, to get shareholders to approve quite a large issuance program. The idea is that uh, in March, the fund uh, will publish a prospectus uh, and this will give further information about the, the placing program. But this effectively is being driven by the investment advisor. They believe they've identified a pipeline of investment opportunities up to a billion pounds. And in fact, they've identified potential follow-on opportunities of up to about 250 million pounds. So there, uh, these are existing investments in the portfolio uh, that they believe that there will be a requirement for further fundraising or perhaps the ability to add to those holdings through other means. So uh, as a result of that, they're looking for shareholder approval to, to green light this. Uh, and it's an interesting development for Chrysalis Investments. It's certainly proven popular. Uh, it's trading on a substantial premium. Um, I think at one stage it hit about a 40% premium. That's come down a little bit, but it's still north of about 25% at the moment. And just to remind people, it invests in uh, later stage private companies, high growth companies, uh, predominantly in the UK and Europe. And they've raised about 470 million to date, but this would provide quite a large increase to to the, the capital of the fund. So we don't know yet, obviously, at this stage, on what basis this fundraising will will go ahead. We don't know whether it will be um, through uh, placing or through a C shares, but it says without regard to preemption rights. So what does that actually mean in practice? Yeah. So all that's saying is that uh, you have to get shareholder approval to disregard preemption rights, uh, and that effectively allows you, and this is quite common across the investment company sector when you come to fundraising, uh, it just means that existing shareholders waive their rights, to so and it can be opened up to a wider body of potential investors. Okay, so um, I imagine if the shares are trading at that sort of premium that there will be every chance of this being approved and uh, and and Chrysalis getting into the fundraising business. That would be a, a safe assumption. Certainly the premium suggests that the demand for the, the, the shares at the moment are strong and obviously the performance has been pretty decent. The only caveat to that, for existing shareholders, you'd want to make sure that they are able to deploy additional capital uh, because obviously what you don't want to cause is a cash drag on the on the existing portfolio, the ordinary share class. So that may be where the C share kicks in. And, and that's really going to be driven by consideration of how quickly it will take to deploy uh, any additional capital. I mean, this is a very uh, concentrated portfolio. I, I think they only had about 12 holdings or so at the end of September last year. Uh, so highly, highly concentrated, but uh, an interesting investment story. Okay, so before we move on and talk about a couple of fundraisers that have actually uh, have completed this week, let's just mention another one that is looking to raise money. So this is an interesting one. This is LXI REIT, and they're, of course, in the commercial property business. And so a commercial property trust raising money, that wasn't something we would have thought about uh, a few months ago, is it? Uh, no, it's a very a very good point. I mean, as discussed, I think we did quite a discussion last week, probably the average discount uh, for a UK commercial property fund at the moment is, is somewhere north of 20%. So the fact that you've actually got one who's put their head above the parapet and say they'd like to raise additional money probably uh, is worth having a look at. But in the case of LXI REIT, it is fair to say they have uh, traded well. They're trading on a premium uh, at the moment, probably about 5 or 6% to their uh, latest NAV. They've said this week they'd like to raise gross proceeds of £75 million through um, effectively uh, a placing and then look to put powers in place for an ongoing share issuance program. Just to put some numbers around it, the issue price that they've proposed represents a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of uh, December, uh, adjusted for dividends. 
And obviously this is all subject to shareholder approval and there'll be a meeting on the 10th of March uh, to see how that turns out. But the investment advisor has identified a pipeline of about £140 million. Uh, and again, it's although this is a UK commercial property fund, it has been quite focused in terms of where it's looking to deploy its capital. So the, the, the type of um, properties that it's looking at, it's food stores, it's industrial, it's drive-through coffee sites and it's garden centres. So these are kind of all property types that the investment advisor describes as defensive or structurally supported. Uh, and that is the premise. And it's probably worth reminding people as well that the kind of the, the special source in terms of this one is that they look to invest in property with very long lets and index linked and it is UK property but in January so just last month uh, they actually announced that they'd increased their interim dividend to a, uh, a kind of above their pre-COVID level uh, and there's clearly not many UK commercial property funds that, that can say that at the moment. Okay so that is maybe a significant moment we should take some note of obviously the type of property that you invest in is absolutely crucial to uh, how successful you can be in raising money and uh, we can move on to talk about uh, one that I think is also in a good place to do that, which is Tritax Eurobox, E-B-O-X. They're looking to raise some money. And uh, I think many people will be familiar with Tritax Big Box REIT. And this is a, a kind of European equivalent. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, they announced this week they're looking to raise 173 million or in fact 200 million euros. And again, that's through uh, placing an open offer and so on and so forth. And again, they're looking for shareholder approval to put a placing program for up to 300 million ordinary shares uh, and maybe possibly for a C share as well. So um, again, this requires shareholder approval and that will be a meeting on the 8th of March. And the issue price will be 103p, which is equivalent to the NAV at the end of September last year and a small discount to the share price before the announcement was made. But again, the deployment of new capital raise is so important and they provided some details on that. So they believe that they can uh, deploy the capital uh, within three months uh, and they've given some detail of uh, four assets in Germany, two in Italy, and they've also got some uh, additional development opportunities within the existing portfolio as well. So uh, they believe there's an opportunity to invest their shareholders capital wisely. And uh, what is the yield on that one out of interest? Or what's the yield on LXI as well? I mean, how far are these two trusts? Uh, they're, they're in these, obviously, what we might call at the moment, good commercial property sectors. What uh, what sort of yields are they offering uh, at today? And how are they trading in the market? So Tritax Eurobox is probably just on a, a very small discount to their uh, NAV at the moment, with a historic yield on uh, 3.5%. Uh, on the current share price. LXI REIT, as we discussed earlier, trading on a premium to their NAV uh, and again on a historic basis yielding 4.4%. Though it's worth noting with that LXI REIT there has been a little bit of volatility over the last year as you'd expect in terms of the dividend payments but still about 4 4.5% yield. Splendid. So that's uh, proposed fundraisings. Let's go back and just quickly look at a couple which we talked about before because they were looking to raise money. Let's see. This is an interesting one. We mentioned there are now two digital infrastructure trusts out there looking for money, and one of them was called Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, C-O-R-D, uh, and uh, they've raised quite a lot of money, I see. They did very well. They did very well indeed, yeah. They raised £370 million through their IPO, and just to remind people, they actually uh, initially said their target was £300 million. They did up that as the uh, closing date neared, but that is a, a very strong result for an IPO. And just to put that into context, it's the largest IPO that we've seen in the investment company sector since October 2018, when Smithson Investment Trust raised, um, I think it was over 820 million. So that was a, a blockbuster, but certainly the strongest in the last few years. As you say, it's one of two effectively digital infrastructure funds that were out there being marketed. We've got Digital Nine Infrastructure. They were looking to raise about 400 million, but the prospectus for that one won't be out in March. They were always going to be a month or two behind Cordiant. Uh, but they will no doubt be delighted with that. Um, they're targeting a total return of at least 9%, uh, of which there will be a 4p dividend when they're fully invested, which I think they said will take up to about five years. And again, it's very interesting. It's, it's Obviously, infrastructure has been a big growth area of recent years, but this is very focused uh, in terms of data centers, mobile telecommunications, broadcast towers, and fiber optic network assets, and, and looking to deploy capital in the UK 
uh, Europe, US and, and Canada. And I think they've got a number of assets lined up ready to go, including US data centers, Scandinavian fiber and European mobile towers. Yes, well, we all know that this is a growth area. The uh, demand for data, certainly, or the use of data is uh, growing exponentially. Hopefully, they'll put a bit of their investment into my area where the <laughs> internet's been very uh, patchy today. Hopefully not the telecommunications tower in my back garden, but uh, certainly some fibre would be very helpful. And how has this successful IPO been received in the market, Simon? That's quite interesting, actually. It was launched at 100p, as you'd expect, uh, as indeed most investment company launches are. But uh, certainly in terms of its closing price on the three or four days since it started to trade, it hasn't actually finished above that 100p. Um, and though nothing to be unduly concerned about, certainly just slightly odd. Normally, you, you see demand for a, a new issue drive the, the share price up to 101, 102p, whatever it might be in the early few days of trading. And the fact that this one hasn't quite made it, it's trading at 99.5p, so not too far off. But it suggests that maybe there were some people on the register at launch who were maybe happy to tuck a few profits away in, in the early days. But one would expect the share price to be relatively stable given the asset class. And, and clearly, there'll be a large element of cash, particularly in the early days of this one. Okay. And so then let's move on to Greencoat UK Wind, uh, which we talked about. It has been trading at a premium. I'm sure their placing was oversubscribed. What was the outcome of that one? It was indeed oversubscribed. They raised £198 million. They, the new shares started to trade on the 19th of February. Uh, and again, as they said, the, the net proceeds will look to repay and reduce the fund's borrowings and thereby allow investment in, in new assets. So as a result of this, and um, when a near-term acquisition is completed, gearing will be about 28% of, of gross assets, which is broadly in line with the guidance that they've given. So again, uh, a good result for Greencoat UK Wind. It's still trading on quite a significant premium uh, and clearly demand remains for its shares. So you think they might come back again at some point? It seems to be the pattern. As you mentioned, the crucial point is have you got the pipeline of investments to justify it? You'll keep coming back, will you not, for a while, at least as long as you trade on these significant premiums, if you've got the opportunities out there or you think you can see the opportunities? Yeah, I think the way I would would term it is that the, it, I think it gives the investment team the confidence to go out and make additional acquisitions uh, on the basis that the rating of the shares is clearly strong and they can use the debt facility, the acquisition financing, in order to make those new acquisitions and then come back to the marketplace uh, and raise capital uh, against that. So effectively, you're kind of borrowing on your overdraft, but you know you can get the money back. But I think the fact that the rating uh, holds up so well, it just gives them the confidence to go out and continue with that strategy, which has worked very well for them for a number of years now. Indeed, it has. Okay, so let's move on to some results. Uh, There's some quite large trusts have been reporting their annual results. These are those with end years around November or December. And I guess we might start with uh, one trust which has a distinction in a particular area in terms of dividend payment history, which is the City of London Investment Trust, CTY, which, uh, well, as you can tell us, Simon, has been around for a long time and uh, has been paying dividends for a long time. But how have they actually been performing? Well, City of London Investment Trust announced its interim results for the six months to the end of December, uh, so the second half of 2020, effectively. Um, in that time, they had an NAV total return of about 7%, uh, and that compares with a 9% return for the benchmark, so a slight underperformance. Uh, and in fact, they lagged the peer group, which was up 12% during that time. However, in share price total return terms, they were up 12%, so much, much stronger in share price total return terms as the premium strengthened effectively. As always, there's a, a big focus, as you alluded to, in terms of the dividend record on this particular investment trust. And it really is the kind of the bellwether AIC dividend hero. Um, the, the board's guidance is that they are confident that they will be able to increase the full year dividend for the 55th consecutive year, which is obviously quite a, an impressive record, although they made it clear that revenue reserves may be uh, utilised in order to achieve that. So actually in the period, uh, year on year or six month period, year on year, the revenue per share was actually down about 16% or so. But uh, Joe Curtis, hugely experienced uh, investment manager, has done a good job for shareholders over a long period of time. Always good to get his take on, on the UK market and where he's seeing opportunities at the moment. The fact that they were slightly behind the benchmark over the last six months uh, will not really matter c compared with what they're trying to achieve over the long term. 
Indeed, that is the case. And obviously, we talked about this last year when all the dividends were being cut. And obviously, many uh, trusts in the equity income sector will be hoping that there is a, indeed a genuine and a significant recovery this year and that dividends do recover. It seems to be we're on that track at the moment. And the better the news about the vaccine and the impact on the economy, then obviously, uh, the better the outlook for future dividend payments from these AIC dividend heroes, as you've mentioned. Let's talk about another investment trust. This is the Brunner Investment Trust, B-U-T. Now, they've had annual results rather than interim results to the 30th November. Uh, tell us about Brunner. So Brunner had its annual results out to the end of November. NAV total return of about 6% uh, in that time, and that compares with their benchmark, uh, which is up 5%. Their benchmark is slightly unusual. It's the 70% FTSE World XUK and 30% FTSE All Shares. So it's a hybrid benchmark, effectively. Their earnings per share uh, were worked out as about 16p, uh, and that was down 26% uh, year on year. But actually, uh, they declared total dividends in respect to the year of just over 20p. And that uh, represented the 49th consecutive year of dividend increases. So it's yet another AIC dividend hero. So interesting on the on the dividend front, the board has made it clear that it, it intends to at least maintain uh, the uh, level of dividend for the financial year 2021. So that will be the 12 months to the end of November this year, uh, unless there is a significant deterioration in global economic conditions. Um, and also we saw a change of manager uh, on this particular investment trust during the year. So it used to be managed by Lucy McDonald and Matthew Tillett took responsibility from May this year. So he'll be happy that he's got off to a reasonable start, I guess, in just outperforming the benchmark by... 1% that may uh, reassure shareholders who always can be concerned when managers change an investment trust. But in terms of, Brunner, where does it, how does it sit in the global sector? I mean, it's not been one of the best performers, I think it's fair to say, and uh, it still trades on quite a significant discount, does it not? It certainly does trade on a wide discount, one of the wider, uh, of a, certainly of a mainstream uh, investment trust in that subsector. So the discount at the moment is about 14% or so. Um, and in any of the total return terms, Probably over the last five years, they've come out about 103%. And just to put that in context, Alliance Trust over the same period is up 116%, whereas Witten is up 98%. So in the kind of pecking order, and obviously Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is, is way ahead. Uh, and thereafter, we see the more the growth-orientated uh, investment trusts. But uh, in terms of the kind of middle land, uh, populated by bankers, FNC, Alliance Trust, Brunner would be coming in slightly behind those names over the last five years. So by no means a disgraceful performance record, far from it, uh, pretty solid. And, and really, uh, that's what they're trying to do here. It's the emphasis on quality companies, a very diversified portfolio, and uh, you know large weightings to healthcare, industrials and financials. And uh, you know, the results are, are what you'd kind of expect given that approach. And I guess it's also fair to point out that if you've got this uh, sort of split benchmark where you have 30% of the all share index uh, and you're going to be tempted to put up, up to that much in the UK index, you're going to obviously be suffering in comparison with investment trusts that have a purely global mandate and perhaps don't have as much in the UK as uh, as Brunner would do. Would that be a fair comment? Uh, that would be fair, though it's worth saying actually at the end of November, so at the end of this reporting period, they had about 18% in the UK. So despite the fact They've got this 30% weighting in their in their hybrid benchmark to the UK. They themselves are quite significantly underweighted at the moment. As indeed many, many global <laughs> investors are. And one of the issues is whether that's going to change over the next uh, few months and years, whether the UK, which uh, looks very uh, cheap on comparison with other markets, uh, does pick up more strength. So let's move on and talk about uh, diverse income trust. This is a, uh, a popular income trust. What uh, What's the story there? So Diverse Income Trust had its uh, interim results out for the six months to the end of November. In that time, um, it was a very strong period for this particular investment trust. Their NAV total return was up about 12%, and that compared with uh, 7% for the benchmark return. Uh, the share price total return was up 11%. Uh, the discount just widened out uh, a little bit. And the dividend income over the period fell 11%. Uh, so this is revenue per share, effectively, to just short of 1.8p. 
Um, but they've maintained the interim dividends, uh, which total 1.75p, and the board have made a commitment to maintain the full-year dividend of 3.7p, though revenue reserves may be utilised, though they won't need it in that first half of the year. But it's always an interesting portfolio, this one. This is Gervais, Williams and Martin Turner of the Premier Mighton Group have run this, and it's effectively it's an unconstrained UK fund. They've got a high weighting to uh, small cap. I think they've got about 30% in AIM at the moment, uh, although you see some uh, larger cap names in there as well. There's about 26% of the portfolio. Uh, certainly the end of November uh, was invested in the FTSE 100 and 21% in the mid cap. So it's a real stock pickers portfolio. And again, reading what Gervais and Martin have to say about the outlook for UK equities uh, is very interesting. Yes, I think it's fair to say that many uh, UK fund managers or UK focused fund managers are starting to sound pretty bullish. They've uh, they've had a rough time for a long period. And I think you can see that in the results of some of these trusts. I mean, we talked about Brunner having a, produced 100% over five years, so doubling your money in five years. And uh, the UK equity income trusts have fallen a long way short of that, have they not? I mean, they, they'll do well if they go even halfway there. So it does underline the uh, the drag, if you like, of being a, both a UK manager and in, in that context also an equity income manager over this period. But that can all change in the future. And I think one of those who might be hoping that is the Murray Income Trust, who have had, I think, uh, another good period. What can you say about Murray Income Trust? Obviously, there's been a significant change there uh, following the recent merger. How have their results been? So they announced interim results to the end of December, so basically the last six months of last year. Uh, and as you say, not a bad set of results at all. NAV total return was about 9% in that period. That was broadly in line with the FTSE all share, though in share price total return terms, they're up about 12% as their discount narrowed. And uh, just kind of drilling down a little bit in the first three months of that period, they were underweight oil and gas and banks, and that proved beneficial. And then there was a bit of a, a swing around in the market sentiment in the next three-month period, and uh, that worked against them. But over the long term, um, it was encouraging. Earnings per share for that period uh, worked out at about 13.5p, and that was down from 15.4p in the uh, first half of 2020. But again, the dividend is obviously a key part uh, of the story here, and uh, they've given some guidance in terms of where their interim dividends are likely to come out. Though actually, there was an interesting commentary around uh, what was likely to happen in terms of dividends in the UK marketplace. And as you say, a number of investment managers are now increasingly positive on prospects for UK equities, although a number note that the outlook for, for dividends is, is slightly mixed. We've seen obviously a number of companies come back to the dividend list. But actually, in the case of Murray Income and, and Charlie Luke, who's the manager of this one, he estimated that it may take an, until 2025 for income levels to attain new highs. Obviously, the benefit of uh, investment trusts is they can use revenue reserves, potentially at least to see investors through those difficult times. So uh, in this particular instance, they estimate about a 16% reduction in portfolio income in 2020. But but clearly, the ability to use revenue reserves gives them some optionality. The merger that you referred to was, of course, the merger with perpetual income and growth. That completed back in November and uh, all assets of about 427 million came across to Murray Income. Uh, the last thing I noted on this one actually is the chairman wished his uh, investors happy vaccinations uh, as his kind of uh, call off in terms of his chairman's report. I haven't seen that before, but probably a sentiment widely shared. <laughs> Indeed it is. I mean, one of the benefits of the merger was that it was bulk up the tr of two trusts, put them together, and it's taken them into, I think, the top four or five of the equity income second in terms of assets. And the hope was that the whole would be better than the sum of the two parts. And uh, has that been reflected in the uh, in the discount and the, the way that these shares have been trading? Well, the, the discount has certainly tightened in. And I, I mentioned that's helped the share price to return over the, this period that they've reported on. But at the moment, probably Murray Income's trade on discount of about 2 or 3%. So not dissimilar, to be fair, to the, the average over the UK equity income space. But the fact, as you rightly say, its its market cap is not too far off a billion pounds now. Um, so that puts it one of the larger uh, investment companies in the UK equity income space. And with that comes a, a stronger degree of liquidity in the secondary marketplace as well. So probably still a little bit early days. I mean, I suspect 
you know, the good people at Aberdeen Standard Investments, uh, who's stated that this is part of, we'll hope that Murray Income moves to a premium rating at some stage and allows them to get onto the, the front foot in terms of share issuance and so on and so forth. Okay, so let's move on to another trust, which is considerably smaller and more of a kind of niche investment trust, I think many people would think. has been going for a long time, though. It boasts one of the longest-serving fund managers in the entire investment trust universe, and I am talking about Rights and Issues, RII, who've produced uh, their annual report, at least this year. What has Simon Knott had to say this year? Well, they had their annual results out for the year to the end of December, and in that period, they generated an NAV total return of just probably down about 1% or so. And that compared with um, probably about a decline of 13% or so for the, the UK marketplace. Uh, they declared a final dividend of 21.5p, and that took their full year dividend to 32.25p. And that was in line with 2019. And again, the discount remained within the target range of probably about 6% discount or so at the moment. Although um, with the market volatility last year, the the board paused the buyback program. So you're right, Simon Knott has been responsible for this one. It is a self-managed investment trust. He's run this portfolio, I think, since the early 80s. 1983, I think, is the number I've got written down here. Uh, And it was a split capital investment trust until 2016. Uh, But now I think it's just the one share class uh, and quite a concentrated portfolio of about 30 holdings focused on UK small caps uh, and a number of AIM traded names in there as well. But the, the long-term track record on this particular one is, is strong. So over the last 10 years, it generated returns of 337%. And that compares to a rise of the FTSE All Share, about 68%. Uh, although over the last three years, slightly muted, uh, probably not unsurprising given market conditions, but this still up 19% compared to a rise of 6% for the FTSE All Share. So it's, uh, it's long-term track, as you say, is very good. But it is small and it is self-managed and so on. And uh, But it's still trading on a discount. You can buy the shares at a discount. I, mean, I guess the shares actively traded or not in this one. It's not one that uh, I guess uh, some of the larger professional investors would be willing to invest in. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. I think liquidity on this one would be an issue. I mean, the, the share price at the moment, it's £22.50. So it's got a larger share price. But on average, over the last six months or so, it's probably traded on average about 7,500 shares a day. Now, clearly, there'll be some variation. Some days will be a lot more than that, but equally, some days will be a lot less. So, yeah, not one of the most liquid names out there. Okay, so we just got time now to mention one more trust, I think, one more results uh, before we wrap up. And that is Aberdeen Emerging Markets. You mentioned Murray and Cummins and Aberdeen Standard Investment Trust. And Aberdeen Emerging Markets is another of theirs. And they've also had some annual results, though these date back a little bit further, I see, all the way back to the the year ending 31st of October. So that's nearly uh, four months ago now. That's right. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 9%. uh, And that was ahead of their benchmark, the MSA Emerging Markets, which was up 8%. And in share price terms, they did even better. Share price total return was up about 12%. So uh, an interesting story. So just to remind people, this is effectively a fund of funds. They uh, invest in emerging market funds, both uh, some close-ended funds, so investment trusts, uh, and also some open-ended funds. And their outperformance was a result of fund selection, which is obviously encouraging because that's really what you'd expect from this management team. Uh, And they had a a number of uh, names in China and South Korea that did particularly well for them, including Fidelity China Special Sits, actually, the investment trust was a, was a strong performer. And that fund selection negated the fact that the portfolio was underweight uh, China and Taiwan. And just reading the investment manager's report, so it's Andy Lister and Bernard Moody, very experienced uh, investors in this space. You know, they make the point in there that actually now the three largest countries in the MSCI emerging benchmark uh, account for about 68% of the, the benchmark weighting. So China, Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, and that's one of the difficulties that an investment manager has in this space, you know, because if they find better ideas elsewhere, in other words, not in China, um, as I'm sure would be the case for, for this particular investment team, then invariably it leads to an underweight. So a positive story. They've also got an enhanced dividend uh, policy and total dividends for the year um, uh, equated to 22p. And actually, they've given some guidance for the next financial year. They'll actually, they said they will increase that to 23p. Uh, and that's an increase of 4.5%. But just to be clear, this is uh, a dividend that's been generated from both income and capital. 
we talked about this before, I think, but how does it sit in the emerging market sector? I mean, it's on one of the wider discounts and uh, its performance record has not been uh, that poor, I don't think. So uh, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So just to be clear, on the on the discount side, they're probably trading on a discount about 13, 14% at the moment, probably about 13%. Um, and I think that probably reflects their shareholder base. They have a number of um, institutional shareholders. Uh, it's probably quite a concentrated shareholder base, it's fair to say. And it's probably an investment trust company that, for one reason or another, hasn't really had the traction, hasn't really developed a, a retail following. And as a result, it's probably its discount has become a little ingrained. But as you say, that the performance record, uh, just looking over the long term, certainly over the last five years, probably broadly in line with their benchmark. Uh, they'll be ahead over three years, ahead over the last year. And they've done a good job uh, more recently for investors as well. So again, a very decent uh, performance record in, in NEV terms. And just finally then, I mean, the we talked about the average investment trust discount coming into 2% or so which is obviously very tight by historical standards. But uh, in emerging markets, I mean, they traditionally uh, trade at a discount. So um, uh, how does the average discount in that sector, how is that looking now compared to, you know, what we're used to over the years, would you say? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think for a number of years, actually, emerging markets and probably Asia as well, you, you can find quite wide discounts. They have stepped in a little bit. So the average discount for emerging markets at the moment, the mainstream emerging market funds is probably about 6%. Though within that, there are a number on uh, wider discounts. So obviously, we've talked about the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Fund. Uh, we've talked previously about the Bearings Emerging EMEA opportunities, which are more specialist vehicle, and Utilico Emerging Markets, again, more specialist. But even if you look at uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, which is quite a mainstream uh, emerging market fund, that's on about an 8% discount or so at the moment. So there certainly are some wide discounts in, in that space. And one could argue that emerging markets perhaps haven't captured uh, investors' imagination over recent years in the way that they did if you turn the clock back 10, 15 years ago when emerging markets were certainly very much in, in favour. But then, to be fair, that's the kind of thing that Andy Lister and Bernard Moody are trying to play with Aberdeen emerging markets. One of the ways that they generate alpha for that particular strategy is to, to buy investment trusts on, on wide discounts. So Fidelity China Special Sits is, is a good case in point that performed very well from the last year. One of the reasons for that was the, the re-rating that it saw as the year progressed. Very good. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, a lot of fundraising news, as I'm sure that will continue, and uh, quite a few results coming out now. Uh, always things to talk about. Obviously, there's a, another important cricket match coming up shortly, Simon, and we're obviously hoping for uh, a better result this time. I mean, it's one all in the series and uh, uh, all to play for there, I think. And maybe we'll see the same in the markets. But uh, for now, that's all we have time for. So I'd like to thank you, Simon, as always, and look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.